We are continuing to move through the book of 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 5 now, the first 16 verses of chapter 5. And uh, I was told, I was told that maybe my, my title for my sermon was slightly misleading. Like somehow it, it didn't really get at the heart of the text. Uh, so I apologize about that. If some of you read the title and then read the passage and were like, how did he come to this title from this passage? I realize it's a little bit of a leap. And I say all of this joking. I, I'm known for how poor my titles are. And so when you read a passage that's mostly about widows, what are you going to title your sermon? Widows. Just seems that easy, doesn't it? Now I know there's a bunch of people I work with who would uh, mock me, and I plan to tell them what I did so that they can mock me because I find it to be humorous. But uh, we are looking at First, uh, First Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16, and, and, and Paul really is talking mostly about widows and how Timothy and uh, the church by extension through Timothy is to approach widows. So let's read this passage together. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be with, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she does, if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, and cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan." If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. May be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask, Lord, that you would give wisdom. Lord, that you would uh, open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to receive your truth this morning, God, that we might, um, might hear and be changed and transformed by your word. God, we pray that as we go through this text, that Christ would be exalted, that we would behold the glory of Christ Jesus with unveiled face, and that, Lord, you would equip us more to do the work you have called us to do, to proclaim the greatness and glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, like I said, chapter 5 is, is really about, uh, mostly about widows, and, and really, you read through the passage, and, and it's, it's really straightforward, right? It, it's a lot like James. I often tell people, if you read the book of James and you get confused or sidetracked in James, then something's kind of wrong with you, 
is James is really straightforward, right? James doesn't pull any punches. He just kind of says what he says, and it's like, all right, well, let me take that in. And, and Paul's kind of doing that here. You know, we, we maybe want to search for some kind of like, like hidden agenda, maybe some kind of deeper spiritual reality, maybe like true widows or real believers and not true widows or false believers. And that's really what Paul's talking about. But uh, that's foolishness and that's allegory. And that's just a slippery slope into deep, deep, deep trouble. What Paul is talking about here is widows. <laughs> he's, he's, he's giving Timothy instruction on how he, and, and, and by extension the church, is meant to approach, handle, administer care for widows. And it's pretty straightforward, and, and, and I, I think if there's any real deep, I don't want to say deep spiritual reality going on here, but any kind of, uh, uh, tr- not try, I'm cautious, cautious saying truth too, it's all true, <laughs> but if, if there's something we, we take away from this beyond how we should care for widows, it's, it's, it's really that, that theology is meant to be tangible. Right. As we read this passage, if we think about where we've been in, in Timothy, Paul has given Timothy instruction about the church, yes. He's also cautioned Timothy to maintain sound doctrine, encouraged Timothy to have, have correct teaching and correct understanding, to devote himself to the study of the word, to show himself to be a workman who rightly handles the word of truth. And, and there, could, this, there could be this sense or this idea that, that, that Timothy's role as a leader over the church is to kind of lock himself in some kind of uh, ivory tower and kind of study the word of God and, and kind of send out instruction and teaching and, and doctrine kind of to the church at large, right? So, so that Timothy's kind of, he's kind of separated from the people and his role is to kind of just provide clear, sound, biblical instruction. Chapter 5 does anything. It reminds Timothy that that's not true. <laughs> The theology that Timothy is supposed to devote himself to, the doctrine that Timothy is supposed to understand, the doctrine that he's supposed to know, is meant to be tangible. It's meant to have hands and feet. Uh, it's meant to, to interact with the people that Timothy is called to shepherd and love and lead. In fact, Timothy would be doing a disservice. He would be unfaithful. He would be disobedient, I would argue, if he were to disconnect himself from the people. If you were to disconnect all the, the learning and instruction that Paul has poured into him, if you were to disconnect it from this call to shepherd the flock. If anything, chapter 5 is a reminder that, that Timothy has a clear application for all the things that Paul's been teaching him. All the instruction that Paul's been giving him has a clear application, and that is the care of people. It's the shepherding of actual souls. <laughs> This is um, maybe uh, not an issue uh, for most of you. you. You think, well, Dan, that's, that's clear. But uh, for some of us, uh, sometimes it is a problem, right? Some of us who, who uh, uh, have, have pursued kind of higher education, uh, in, in higher theological education, there, there, there can be a temptation to want to kind of bury yourself in that. To kind of want to uh, kind of sequester yourself in a library somewhere surrounded by a bunch of dead people and just kind of listen to them talk to you all day and kind of just kind of grow and mature in knowledge and understanding. We actually have three uh, young men here who are, are in college right now, right? And I, I'm, I'm looking at them thinking that's probably a major temptation for these three gentlemen. Uh, one of them wearing a, a teddy bear sweatshirt. That, is, that a, is that a professorial teddy bear? It looks like he might be a professor. It's a manifestation of what you aim to be. I, I'm teasing. Um, but there's a real temptation for that. I, I remember when I was younger, I was younger, I was serving in, in a, a place called Marion, South Carolina. And I was speaking to a, uh, 
I was speaking to a Presbyterian pastor. Maybe it's like a little bit of foreshadowing. I didn't realize at the time because I was at a Southern Baptist church. And there was this really faithful, uh, godly Presbyterian pastor in the, the adjacent town. So two little towns, sister cities, Marion and Mullins, South Carolina. Maybe some of you have heard of Mullins, South Carolina, largest form, home of the, the largest tobacco auction on the East Coast. No, no. Okay. So I was speaking to this, this, or this pastor and I said to him one time, I said, you know, the church would be great if it wasn't for all the people. And he quickly, I mean, without, without a moment's breath, he quickly reprimanded me. And, and, and he didn't take it jokingly. He didn't chuckle. He came quick at me. And he told me, you, you can't speak that way and you can't think that way. All that you do, all that you learn is for the people. And I think that's what Paul is doing in, in 1 Timothy 5 here in a sense. Is, Timothy, all that you're doing, all that you're learning, all that you're experiencing, it's not, it's not for you, right, to sit and write papers and to rejoice at how intelligent you are. It's for people. It's to minister to these people that you see around you day in and day out. And so after Paul says to Timothy in, in the end of chapter 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this. Right? Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. Be faithful and diligent to study and to know and to read and to grow and to be faithful to, to proclaim the word. He comes right down to chapter 5, verse 1. He says what? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What does Paul do in verse 1 and 2? He reminds Timothy, Timothy, there's people. There's people that you're going to interact with. There's people that you're called to shepherd. There's people that you are called to love. There's people that you're called to teach and instruct. And here's how you are to do it, he says to him. In the first uh, two verses, uh, Paul kind of gets at this, this general idea, this, this general picture of Timothy's interaction with the people in the church. And then in 3 through 16, it gets very specific as he addresses that, that unique situation or that, that situation of how to handle and approach widows. And, and what Paul makes clear in, in the first two verses is that Timothy is to not use his position as a means to kind of domineer over those in his care. Right? Timothy is clearly in a position of leadership. He's clearly called to shepherd this, these people. He's clearly called to teach and instruct these people. And in fact, we have said from the beginning of 1 Timothy, that, that Timothy is more a, a personal representative of, the, a representative of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus than he is the pastor of the churches of Ephesus, right? Uh, he, he's more a personal representative of Paul than he is a pastor, which means that, that, that Timothy, as he's there among these congregations, among these home churches, he has a, a clear position of authority. Right? He has a clear position of authority over these churches and over these people, and one that I would argue is recognized. It's known and it's understood. Paul encourages Timothy to be aware of it, right? When he says, let no one look down on you because of your youthfulness, but set an example in faith and in purity. So Timothy's got this position, but this position that Timothy has is not one that's meant to be used to oppress people. He's not to be a tyrant, right, over the church, but he's to be a servant over the church, loving the church, and encouraging the church. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage or exhort. This is often how Paul interacts with people in his writings. When he says, I encourage you or I, exhort, I exhort you, like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I encourage you by the mercies of God. It's the same word there. 
It's how you approach the people, Timothy. You don't lord over them, but you encourage them. You exhort them. You call on them to walk in lives of faithfulness and and, um, holiness and righteousness unto the Lord. And this can't be done, Timothy, if you're running around and rebuking everyone with this kind of heartless, soulless demeanor. We're reminded of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he exhorts elders not to domineer over the flock, but to be examples to the flock, shepherding the flock of God that is among them. And so Paul reminds Timothy in these first two verses here that that there's people he has to minister to, and there's a way that he has to minister to them. He has to encourage them, encourage them as he would a father, as a brother, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. A clear reminder to Timothy that temptation is both common and constant. That word purity there in, in, its exact, in this kind of exact way is only used, or this exact word I should say, is only used in uh, 1 Timothy. It's used here and it's used earlier in chapter 4 where Paul calls on Timothy to set an example in all purity. So Timothy is to constantly be aware of the fact that the way that he leads, the way that he loves, the way that he encourages, the way that he exhorts is to be done in a way that's above reproach in a way that's an example, a clear example to the church. So Paul reminds Timothy that there's people to minister to. There's a way that he is to minister to them. And he also reminds or makes clear that there's a new relationship or a deep relationship that exists between all these people now. Uh, Paul says to rebuke an older man uh, as, a, as a father, right? a younger man as a brother, an older, an older woman as a mother, and a younger woman as a sister. Timothy is to look at those around them, and how is he to look at them? He's to look at them as if they are family, right? He's to look at them as if they are family. Older men, he's to see them as fathers and older women as mothers and younger as brothers and sisters. I think what Paul's hitting at here is is the true reality or the deeper reality of what the gospel does and what the gospel produces within the church is that it binds us together as brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in Christ, Now, we use that word often, quite a bit, maybe. We'll talk about people and we'll say, hey, brother, thank you, brother, or hey, sister, thank you, sister. And I feel like sometimes it's just kind of lip service, right? It's a term that we use. It's the vernacular. It's the vocabulary. It's how we interact. But it's more than just vernacular. It's more than just vocabulary. It is reality. Paul is saying this to Timothy because this is how he is to view those around him. He's to see them as family. Now, this is rooted not in Paul's kind of idea or thought or imagination, but it's, it's actually rooted in the life and the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, it's what Christ promises to his church. In Mark chapter 3, there's a scene where Jesus is teaching, and a disciples come and they say to him, hey, your, your, your mother and your sisters are outside and they want to talk to you. Or they want to speak to you, trying to interrupt Christ while he's teaching. And, and Jesus responds by saying, who are my mother? And my brothers. And looking about, looking about at, that, at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. There's this wonderful reality that the gospel produces. And that reality is it creates a new family in Christ Jesus. Now, this shouldn't shock us and this shouldn't surprise us because what has God been doing from the beginning of time? He's been working through families. 
In fact, if you go from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of Malachi, what is the whole entire Old Testament about? It's about one family. It's about one family called to God out of Ur of the Chaldeans that grew, rightly so, into a large nation, but it's one family that God is working through. And what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 3? He says, the one from whom all families on earth receive their name. God works through families. This is one of the reasons why we are covenantal. And our, our, less, than, uh, our less than enlightened brothers over at Bethlehem are not covenantal. That was a slight dig. I'm just, I'm just teasing with the college boys again. But we're covenantal. Why? Because we understand, we recognize, we see that God works through families. He has chosen, he has determined, he has planned, he has purposed to work through lineage. Why? <laughs> Why? Because it points to this greater, deeper reality of what he's going to do in Christ Jesus, where he creates one new man out of the two. He, Christ, destroys the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile and creates in himself one new man, one new family in Christ. He brings us together in Christ so that now in Christ we have this deep relational bond that we cannot separate. You know, they say you get to pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Right? When you sit down at Thanksgiving dinner, you're stuck with those folks. Right? Now, there might be a couple of people like, I kind of wish, you know, he was like at the other table, like at the kids' table or something like that. But you look around that room, those are your people. You have a big family reunion, you look around, those are your people. You didn't get to choose them. They're your people. Well, in a lot of ways, it's that way in the church. Look around. Don't be shy. Like, do it. Don't look at me. Look around. These are your people. These are your, this is who Christ has brought you into relationship with. By his sovereign purpose and his sovereign plan, he has created this family. He made it. Why? For his glory and for our good. And so Paul, I think, is, is, is kind of, he's not dragging Timothy down, right? Kind of like out of the, the clouds of, of theological speculation. But he certainly is kind of saying, hey, Timothy, persist in the teaching. Look to the gospel. I mean, it's, it is so fun. It is so, I'm going to be honest, this, sound, this is going to sound real nerdy. It is so fun to read like deep theological books and, and to just flex your brain on some of the hardest things that you can think about, right? That's so fun, but you can't stay there. You got you to come down and you got to see your brothers and sisters and your mothers and your fathers. And Timothy, you need to love them. You need to shepherd them. You need to care for them. You need to encourage them. You need to exhort them. Don't run around rebuking everyone, but encourage and exhort and pray for them. Lead them and shepherd them that they might walk in honesty and fulfillment and truthfulness in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, in the first two verses, in this general sense, reorients Timothy's perspective to see the church and to see the family that he's been called to love and to shepherd. Then in verses 3 through 16, Paul gets very specific in how the church is to address and care for widows in need. Now, if you notice, there's a, a, a word or a phrase here that Paul repeats three times in uh, these verses, 3 through 16. And that is the phrase, truly widows. Right? If you look at uh, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Uh, verse 5, she who, truly is, she who is truly a widow 
And then later in verse 16, it says that the church may care for those who are truly widows. What does this tell us? This tells us that Paul's main point here in these verses is how to care for those who are truly widows. Right? How the church is to address and care for those who are truly widows. And he gets at this. He, he instructs Timothy in this by doing two things. Uh, first, he defines what a true widow is, one who is truly a widow. And then secondly, he gives clear clarity on how the church is to administer care. So he wants Timothy to understand who is truly a widow, and he wants to understand how the church is to administer care to these people. So in these verses, 3 through 16, Paul uh, makes, a dis- makes a distinction between one who is truly a widow and one who is not. Um, what we find as we look at these verses is that one who is truly a widow is one who is truly in need. In fact, if you have another uh, translation, I think it's the NIV actually translates it that way. One who is truly in need, right? So the idea of being truly a widow is one who is truly in need, one who does not have care or assistance or any means of care or assistance outside of the church community, right? In Paul's time, much like it is in other places around the world still to this very day, to be a widow is oftentimes to be destitute. Right? If you're a widow without a, a, a male heir or a husband to provide, uh, you are left with nothing. And oftentimes you're left on the streets. Uh, you are left destitute. And so one who is truly a widow is one who is um, in true need. Paul goes on to say that true widows are those who are too old to remarry, too old to remarry, and without any means of assistance. So, consequently, those who have family or people who can provide assistance, or those who are young enough to remarry, Paul says, are not true widows. So a true widow is one who's too old to remarry and one who has no assistance, no familial assistance or no means of assistance. And a not true widow, right? It's kind of a misleading term, right? Widow's kind of an absolute term. You can't be like a partial widow, right? But a not true widow is one who doesn't have any means or has means of assistance or is young enough to, uh, to remarry. And so Paul says the concern of the church, the concern of the church is to be true widows, those who are truly in need. And so Paul makes a clear distinction also in how care is to be administered to these widows. And what Paul makes clear is that the first line of defense is family. Right? The first line of defense is the family. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness. Um, that, that phrase there, uh, again, has been translated in different ways. And... In South Africa, we use the NIV in our, in our curriculum, so I was reading this a lot in the NIV, but in the NIV, it says, let them learn how to put their religion into practice. Let, let the family learn how to put religion into practice or put godliness into practice to show uh, to their household and to make some sort of return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul says, if you have a widow who has children or grandchildren, let those people Let the children or the grandchildren learn how to practice godliness. Give them the opportunity to learn how to practice godliness and to meet the needs of their widowed relative. And Paul attaches a promise to this or an assurance to this, right? He says, this is indeed pleasing in the sight of God. That that kind of of high level of assurance, it's pleasing in the sight of God, is kind of juxtaposed against the the strong wording of verse 6. Look at verse 6. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, and has denied the faith, uh, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul makes it clear that if someone is 
uh, not a true widow in that they have family that can care for them, then the family needs to step up and care for them. And Paul says in doing this, the family is learning how to put godliness into practice. They're, they're learning how to give hands and feet to theology, right? To what, what the Bible would call religion. James says pure and true religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their times of need. And I find this interesting, um, as one who worked in a nursing home, I, I often wonder how well we do at this, right? How well we as a, uh, as a nation, uh, founded as we were upon Christian principles, ideals, and thoughts, do at putting our religion into practice with our own family members. So I worked in a nursing home and I was a CNA. So if you're familiar with the medical world, uh, that's like the bottom rung. That's like, that's like very first, uh, I told my wife when we got married, I have changed way more diapers than you have. Uh, I have seen way more naked old people than you will ever want to see in your whole entire life. And I've got some really great stories that have come from that too. Some really wonderful stories. I'll, I'll tell you those later if you want to hear them. But we would care for these people who families would bring in and leave there. Now, some families would come and visit, some families would come and see them, and some families wouldn't. Now, I'm not here to tear down the whole entire nursing home system. Some people required so much care that, that a family, it would be extremely difficult for a family to, to give that care. But there were other people that I knew that I worked with that, that didn't require too much care. They just needed somebody to come check on them and help them and assist them when they needed it. But it was far easier to not do that. <laughs> I said earlier in the call to confession that, that we, have a, we have a serious individual kind of bent and ideology in, in the West, and, and that's true. We do. And, and you see it, you see it really in, in, in stark clarity when you visit other countries, when you, when you engage other cultures that, that don't have that. So we lived in South Korea uh, for four years. And in South Korea, it's transitioning, but it was for centuries, a multi-generational society in that you had multiple generations living in one home. So that as the parents started to age out, the kids would, would take up the slack and they'd care for their parents and meet the needs of their parents. And, and, and in doing this, they, they cared for those who had come before them. Now they did it rooted in a kind of a false idolatry of a, a worship of ancestors, but in a way they were hitting at, at a deeper truth that, that they were unaware of. And Paul says here, the family is to be that first line of defense, to put their religion into practice, to care for those who have cared for them. If you're a parent in this room, you, you know what Paul's getting at there. We sacrifice so much of our life, our energy, our effort, our money for our children to meet their needs. It was on the way here, Calvin was, Calvin <laughs> was talking about our salary. And I thought, that's a funny statement. I was like, how much of the, our salary do you bring in, Calvin? <laughs> And he's like, uh, not really much. And he's like, and then you know, to his credit, he's he was like, actually, I'm kind of like a negative on the salary. I was like, bingo, buddy, right? Now, I don't resent that. Love my son, want to provide for my son, want to give to my son, right? But that's what Paul's saying is that the parents pour into children and children are given this opportunity as their parents age to put their religion into practice and to meet the needs of their parents. And in doing that, it, it becomes a very beautiful display of the gospel. It becomes a beautiful display of the way that God cares for us. That's why God is pleased. He's pleased in this, Paul says. But there are those, Paul says, who do not have family. They do not have children or grandchildren. They do not have people who can care for them. And these are true widows, Paul says. And Paul says, such widows should be enrolled. Now, what Paul means there is there's most likely a list 
of women, a list of widows that the church had. Uh, and they, it was a list of widows or women that they were to care for. And Paul gives stipulations, right? They are to be over 60, 60 or over. They are to be women who have a track record of faithful gospel service within the community. And the church is therefore to come and to care for them and to meet their needs. So if the family's not there, if a family can't care, if a woman's over 60 and she has this track record of faithfulness, the church needs to step up and needs to care for this woman and meet her needs so long as she has need. What's interesting here is Paul uh, doesn't directly say this in the text, but we get the idea that to be enrolled had certain stipulations to it as well. Certain expectations to these women who would be enrolled on this list. I think that's why Paul says in verse 11 that Timothy is to refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry, they incur judgment having abandoned their faith. Uh, and then Paul goes on to say right after that that he encourages younger women to, younger widows to remarry. So marriage isn't necessarily the issue, right? But it's that once enrolled on this list, there seems to be some kind of uh, un, uh, or known, at least unknown to us, but known regulation or stipulation, most likely that they would remain celibate and that and they were made unmarried and they would devote their energy and effort uh, to the ministries of the church, to the care of people in the church and other things. And so that younger women would be led away by temptation, want to be remarried and would violate the stipulations of being enrolled. And so Paul makes clear that Timothy is to care for widows. He makes clear who are widows and who are not widows, how care is to be administered, and how care is not to be administered. And reading this, I think, leads us to a pretty practical question. Why? Why all this talk about widows? Why devote so much energy and effort here to how Timothy is to handle widows, how the church is to handle widows? I mean, two little verses about how he's going to interact with everybody as a whole, and then 3 through 16 is all focused on widows. Well, I would like to suggest a couple reasons why Paul gives so much ink to dealing with widows. The first is pretty obvious. Most likely, there is need for this within the church community at Ephesus, and there is also clear biblical precedent for this as we read through the Scriptures. Most likely, this community at Ephesus, this church that had been around for a little while, had a large number of widows in it, and those widows needed to be cared for, and Timothy needs some instruction so as to not deplete the church's resources. I mean, resources are finite. I think it's worth pointing out that Timothy is instructed here, the church is instructed here, that they don't care for all widows. Right? It's, it's not every widow in Ephesus that the church is going out to, to care for. It's the, the, the widows of their community, the widows within their church community. I think this is a little bit of something that we as a church can think about more deeply. But we often, I think in the United States, churches get so focused on meeting the needs of the community that they feel, fail to meet the needs of their own community. <laughs> Right? They, they think that the gospel is better exemplified as they kind of reach into the, the community, meet the needs of people in the community, than it is the, the church community being cared for and met. And I would argue that it's the other way around in the scriptures, that it's first and foremost the church community's needs are being met, and then as opportunity and extension, the larger community's needs can be met. So it's not every widow in Ephesus that Timothy's supposed to go hunt down and bring into the church. It's those who are within the church community. And evidently, there were quite a few of them such that this instruction was required. But beyond that, there is biblical precedent for this kind of instruction. What is the first problem that arose in the church? 
Acts chapter 6. It was a dispute among widows within the church. Right? That's what led to the appointment of, of the seven that were called to serve within the church. It was a dispute among the Hellenists and the Jewish widows about who's getting food and who's getting distribution. Beyond that, there is James 1.26, along with many Old Testament passages like we read in Exodus chapter 22, where we are encouraged and exhorted and even commanded to care for widows. It would appear that widows and fatherless in particular are pretty keen in God's plan and, and, and they're, they're pretty apparent on his heart to make sure that his people are caring for those who are in need of care. Uh, beyond that, beyond the need within the community, beyond the biblical precedent, I would argue that the reason Paul gives this instruction is because the gospel often finds fertile ground among the needy. As we think about the church expanding and the gospel being proclaimed, what do we find oftentimes is that the, the gospel finds most fertile ground among those who are in need, who are keenly aware of their need already. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 already, and Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he calls on them to consider their own calling. And what does he say? He says, not many of you wise, not many of you powerful, not many of you rich according to the flesh. Why? Because God has chosen the base things of the world. He's chosen the things that are not, the foolish things of the world, that he might shame the things that are, that he might bring to nothing the things that are. The gospel finds fertile ground among the nothings of the world, among the base things of the world, among the foolish things of the world. The gospel tends to flourish there. And it's not hard to understand why. You know, Jesus said it's how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because a rich man oftentimes is not keenly aware of his own need. And if he does have a need, what can he do? He can rectify it pretty quickly. A little bit of money can cover a lot of problems. But when you have no money, you have no food, you have no home, you have no help, you become really aware of your situation really quickly. And this is where we often see the gospel flourish. Now, that doesn't mean that rich people don't come to Christ. That doesn't mean powerful people don't come to Christ. It says not many, not many, not many. It doesn't say not any. It says not many. I remember one time there was this uh, rich woman who said she thanked God for the letter M. Right? Because it's not, it's not that it's not any rich people. It's not many rich people. Right? But the gospel finds most of its, of its power, most of its fruit among the needy. And so as the gospel is being proclaimed in Ephesus, what do they probably see? They probably see a lot of needy people coming to faith in Christ. Putting their hope and their trust in Jesus, coming in to the doors of the church. Being brought in by the promises of forgiveness and salvation that Christ offers to those who are in need. And this leads to another point. Not only does the gospel find fertile ground among the needy, but I would argue that the gospel is best exemplified in caring for the needs of others. The gospel is best exemplified in caring for the needs of others, especially those who are in need. The gospel is a message that is true, right? The gospel is words. I was uh, looking on, the, uh, on my phone today. Are you guys familiar with chat GPT? Are you familiar with that? Somebody asked ChatGPT to, to, um, uh, what the Christian gospel was. And ChatGPT actually did a fairly great job of, of, of writing out, speaking out the Christian gospel. And the Christian gospel is a message. It's, it's, it's words communicated, right? Francis Assisi used words of necessary. They're always necessary, right? The gospel is truth communicated. But it's not just truth communicated. 
It's truth lived out. It's the transformative power of the gospel at work in our souls so that we are no longer the people we used to be. And one of the ways that the gospel is seen so clearly, so vividly, so wonderfully, so powerfully is as the church is meeting the needs of one another. We see this in the ministry of Christ. Why did Jesus do miracles? Why did he go out and heal the sick? Why did he raise the dead? Why did, he, why did he give sight to the blind? Why did he give hearing to the deaf? Why did he do these things? Well, one, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies, right? And two, his miracles, his miraculous works, the way that he's meeting the needs of people, give veracity to the message he's declaring. If you don't believe me, Jesus says in John 10, believe the works. The works bear witness to who I am. You know a tree by its fruit. So it, it makes sense that if, if the works of Christ give veracity to his message, then the works of the church should do what? Should give veracity to our message as well, right? The works of the church should support, should, 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 should shine a light on the truth of the gospel to say the gospel is really true because look what it's doing, Look what it's doing amongst these people who before Christ had probably no relation to one another, but now in Christ are brought together as brothers and sisters and fathers and brothers, and now they're brought together as family. Look what the gospel is doing. Look how they're meeting one another's needs. So Paul says to the church at Philippi, the most, probably the most impoverished church too, right? What does he say to them? He says, look not only to your own needs, but to the needs of others. Have this mind in you that is yours. It is yours. I love that. It is yours in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be greedily held onto, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself and he came in the, in the likeness of human flesh, being found in the likeness of flesh, and, and, and he came as a, as a servant to give his life to give his life so that, that we, through him, might be forgiven. So Christ comes and he serves. The Son of God, Mark 10, 45, came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes to serve, to meet our needs. To do what? To teach us what to do. That we're to meet one another's needs. That we're to care for one another. And it begins with the most needy in the congregation. Clearly, it begins with the most needy in the congregation. It's easy to meet the needs of someone who doesn't have a lot of needs. That's easy. That's a cake walk. Any of us could do that. Seriously, any of us. What's really difficult is going to those who are desperate, going to those who have nothing, and meeting their needs. Acts 4, Acts 4, 32 through 35. I, I, I love this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, we could sit here and argue whether Acts is descriptive or prescriptive, but that is inconsequential to what we're called to do, and that is we are called to meet one another's needs. Do you have to sell your land, sell your farm, sell your car? I don't care. If you want to do it, do it. That's awesome. But what's undeniable is that in the early church, there wasn't a single person in need, and there shouldn't be a person in need now. 
because I think that just gives beautiful testimony to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the one who had all things, glory over all things, sovereignty over all things, reign over all things, from before time began, gave of himself to meet our needs so that we, we who deserved death, right? That's the other thing too. Like it's easy when you find somebody in need to say what? Well, they, they brought that on themselves. They, they brought that on themselves. How many times, don't raise your hand here, but how many times have you driven by somebody begging or somebody asking for something and you think to yourself, I wonder what they did to bring that on themselves. My dad, uh, my dad thought that one time we were in a car and uh, he thought that. And I said to him, I was like, what does it matter? What does it matter what they did to bring it on themselves? We're not called to understand why people did what they did. We're called to meet needs. We often want to figure, you know, focus on that kind of negative part instead of like the positive command, meet needs. It's easy to look at, at other people and go, well, you, you're in this situation because you put yourself in this situation. Even within the church, we can do that. It's very easy within the church. You're in this situation because you put yourself in this situation. Well, you know what situation we all put ourselves in? Death. Separation from God. And rightly so. None of us could lift a finger and say, God, you are unjust in condemning me to hell. No, we earned it. We put ourselves in that situation. And what did Christ do? He came and rescued us. And so we are called to do what? We are called to meet the needs of others around us. And in doing so, we make known the gospel. We make known the gospel. This passage does anything like I said before. This passage reminds us that theology is meant to have hands and feet. Theology is meant to be tangible. If we disconnect it from loving one another, caring for one another, meeting the needs of one another, all we have is dead orthodoxy. That's it. Praise God, you got the truth nailed down. You could pass a test, way to go. But what about, what about those around you that you're called to love and to care for and to labor for and to pray for and to meet the needs of? Do we even know if there's anyone in need in this church? It's easy to go, well, we're in the southwest suburbs. We got that licked. Bank accounts stacked up, 401ks lined up. Everybody's fine. But do we know that? Do we know our brothers and our sisters and our mothers and our fathers well enough to know if there's anyone in need? Or are we all just focused on our own situation? Brothers and sisters, let us, let us learn. Let us learn from this. Theology is meant to be tangible, to be tasted, to be touched, to be experienced as truth impacts and changes the way we love and shepherd one another. So that, as the author of Hebrews says, none of us might fall through the, through the hardness of, of our hearts or the sinfulness of disobedience, but we all might reach the rest of God together. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for Christ Jesus, who is our hope and salvation. We thank you, Father, that, that you, that you didn't look at our situation and say, you, you brought this on yourself. Now take your medicine 
sleep in the bed that you've made. Father, you are far too loving, far too kind, far too gracious, far too merciful for that. You sent your son to rescue us, to give his life so that we who deserve death might live. Father, help us, help us to put that, that kind of truth, that kind of reality into practice among the body. To love, to care for, and to meet the needs of one another in such a way, Father, that you are glorified, that Christ is exalted, that the gospel is made known, that we, that we, Christ Church Twin Cities, might, might be a light to those around us. That those who, who would look in would, would see not only word, but they would see word and deed. They would see truth and action. And Father, that you would call many to yourself. Use us towards that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.